1: This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. And today, we bring you a story about one of the most forgotten Hall of Famers in NBA history. You all know that part of the reason we do this podcast is to keep these stories alive and to remember some of the great players from the past that people do not talk about anymore. That is my passion and part of the driving force behind this show. But our subject today is truly forgotten. It's not just that people do not talk about him anymore, although that is true, but I was going through a few lists of some of the all-time players in NBA history, and he's not on any one of these lists. That is literally being forgotten. Our subject today is a player by the name of Bob Davies. On his Hall of Fame plaque, it actually says, First Superstar of Modern Professional Basketball. So why am I so worked up this week? By the time I finish his story, hopefully you will feel the same way. If we go through the NBA and talk about the best dribblers from each era, we might start with Steph Curry and Kyrie Irving from today's game, and their ball control is at another level. But before that, there was Jamal Crawford or Allen Iverson, Before that, there was Tim Hardaway. And then going backwards, we have Isaiah Thomas and Pistol Pete Maravich. If we go all the way back to the 1950s, we have to talk about Bob Cousy. That is where most people stop when it comes to the best ball handlers in NBA history. But I want to take it back one more generation to the late 1940s, because that is where we find Bob Davies, whose nickname was the Harrisburg Houdini. He was the inventor of the -the behind-the-back dribble, Back in the day when many players were still taking two-handed set shots, to see a guy coming down the floor at full speed and pull a behind-the-back dribble on his way in for a layup was like seeing the future. It was almost like taking Jason White Chocolate Williams and dropping him into the 1940s. He once played before a packed crowd at Madison Square Garden back in 1941 and used his behind-the-back dribble to great effectiveness. It was all the people could talk about. The New York papers used a ton of ink talking about this player from Seton Hall University who actually dribbled behind his back. Fans were amazed. If they had video highlights of Davies back then, they would have gone viral. Many experts at the time said that he might be the best college player since Hank Lucetti who played at Stanford 10 years earlier. By the way, if you want to hear the Hank Lucetti story, go back to episode six where I share the story of how he single-handedly popularized the one-handed jump shot in a game that he played in Madison Square Garden in the 1930s. But back to Bob Davies. Back in 1971, for the NBA's 25th anniversary, they named their Silver Anniversary Team. This was a list of the 10 best players in NBA history, excluding players that were still active at the time, which is why you don't see Will Chamberlain or Jerry West on the list. But here is the list of the 10 best players in NBA history as far as the NBA leadership was concerned back in 1971. The list is this, Bob Cousy, Bill Sharman. Sam Jones, Bill Russell, George Mikan, Bob Pettit, Dolph Shays, Paul Arizon, Joe Fulks, and Bob Davies. So why is he not talked about more? My best guess is that there is virtually no footage on him playing anymore. He primarily played in the days before game footage was saved. He did play on TV quite a few times, but hardly any of those games were actually recorded. But I feel like I am getting ahead of myself here. So let me take you back to the beginning of his story. He was born on January 15, 1920 in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. He was a kind of all-American kid that was good at everything he tried. He was quite simply a good all-around athlete. Back in 1931, he took third place at the National Marbles Tournament. He was 11 years old at the time. Just three years later, he returned to the National Marbles Tournament and lost the semi-final match to future baseball hall of famer Harold Pee Wee Reese. But not everything was roses for the Davies family. In 1932, right during the heart of the Great Depression, his father Idris lost his job and money became very tight for them. But they made it through and did everything they could to make every dollar stretch as far as possible. By the time he reached high school, it seemed that he played on every team the school had He was the captain of the basketball team and the baseball team. He also played football and ran track. He was a four-sport letterman at his high school. He was popular and easy to get along with. He was just good at everything he did. But he wasn't very big. So just for comparison, Davies is about the same size as John Stockton, 6'1 and 175 pounds. He beat players with his speed and skill. He graduated high school in 1937 and enrolled at Franklin and Marshall University and played one year on the basketball team, but he did not enjoy his time there. As luck would have it, the Boston Red Sox helped arrange for a baseball scholarship for him at Seton Hall University. There was no contract signed with the Red Sox, but the implied expectation was that he would develop his baseball skills at Seton Hall and then join the Red Sox a few years later. But the weird thing about his transfer to Seton Hall is that he was given four years of eligibility at Seton Hall, even though he had already played one year at Franklin and Marshall. But a lot about the NCAA was more relaxed back then. So now he is at Seton Hall on a baseball scholarship, but also wanted to play for the basketball team. Since the two seasons did not conflict or overlap, it would have been easy to do. Now this is when he became obsessed with the behind the back dribble. He felt a deep need to perfect it. He would spend hours in the gym practicing the move at ever-increasing speed until he could pull it off at full speed. He decided to walk onto the basketball team and join the freshman team. With his leadership, they beat the varsity in a practice game. That is when Seton Hall knew that they had someone special. He also played well for the freshman baseball team. And they also knew that they had someone special. Heading into his sophomore year, he was able to join the varsity of both teams and really make an impact for the school. He was part of a group of five sophomores on the basketball team who were known as the Seton Hall Wonder Five. The group included Ken Pine, John Ruthenberg, Bob Fisher, Bob Holmes, and Bob Davies. Yes, Bob was a very popular name at the time. They started a 43-game winning streak that would extend into their junior year. He also hit 381 for the baseball team and then spent the summer playing semi-pro baseball for the Burlington Cardinals in order to stay in shape for the next school year. His popularity continued to grow as he was featured in a few newsreels that were played before movies at the movie theater. Remember, these were the days before TV as we know it today. Nat Holman, the Hall of Fame basketball coach, called Davies the best basketball player he had ever seen. After that sophomore year is when Davies decided to make basketball his primary sport. He still played on the baseball team, but they switched his scholarship over to the basketball team. Due to the success of the Wonder Five, Seton Hall was able to build a brand new gym nicknamed The House That Bob Built. I guess when you have three Bobs in your starting lineup, it could have been any one of them. But in this case, it really was about Bob Davies. The school paid $800,000 to build that gym. And that was back in 1940. Two years later, in 1942, he graduated from Seton Hall as an All-American basketball player and with a record of 55-5 while on the varsity. He actually graduated early and skipped his final baseball season in order to go into the military. Seton Hall, along with many other universities, created an accelerated program for their senior men so that they could get their degrees before joining the war effort. The Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor just a few months earlier, and America needed every man available to help win World War II. So instead of going directly to the pro leagues like most college athletes of Davies caliber, he joined the Navy, where he was stationed at the Great Lakes Naval Training Station in Chicago. That was actually a lucky break for him, because Davies had been invited to play in the annual College All-Star Game, which took place in Chicago every year. A team made up of college All-Stars would be matched up against a professional team. In this case, it was the Oshkosh All-Stars from the National Basketball League. The NBA did not exist yet, so the NBL was the top professional league at the time. Also, on a side note, The Oshkosh All-Stars were not really an All-Star team. They were a regular team from the NBL who just went by the name All-Stars. In any case, the college players beat the professionals by a score of 61-55 and Davies won the Game MVP award. Davies would later say that this is the game when he knew he could make it as a professional basketball player. But before starting his professional basketball career, the United States needed to win World War II. While he went through his training for the Navy, he played on the base basketball team called the Blue Jackets. They would schedule games against other bases and even against college teams. His Blue Jackets team once beat the University of Kentucky 53 to 39, and Kentucky coach Adolph Rupp called the Blue Jackets the best team he had ever seen. Davies entered the Navy as a third-class petty officer, and when he left the Navy three years later, he was a lieutenant. But this is what he did while he was in the Navy. He was a submarine chaser he commanded a ship that patrolled the mediterranean sea looking for german submarines and engaging them if necessary davies never shared much about his time in the navy so not much is known about the specifics of his service but that is not uncommon my wife's grandfather also served in world war ii and he never spoke of his time in the service but we do know this anytime he had shore leave he would find a gym and he would play pickup basketball with anybody else who was willing to play with him. As always, he played pickup games like they were the championship game. But once the war was over, it was time for him to join the professional ranks of basketball. At the time he left the Navy, the NBA still did not exist yet. The premier basketball league at the time was still the NBL. The NBL did not have a draft the way we think of it today, When a player became available, every team had the opportunity to outbid each other for that player's services. In this case, it was the Rochester Royals that stepped up and offered him the best deal. It worked out in a lot of ways, as the Royals were loaded with talent. And if the name Rochester Royals sound familiar, it's because they still live on today as the Sacramento Kings. And this is actually a good place to take a break. Davies has just completed his naval service and is about to become a professional basketball player, so we'll be right back with the rest of his story.
0: This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.
1: Welcome back to the show, and we will continue with Bob Davies' professional career. As I mentioned, the Royals team was loaded with talent. The team already had Al Servi, another Hall of Famer, Red Holdsman, who had later become the Knicks head coach of both of their championships and is now in the Hall of Fame as a coach. The team also had Otto Graham, who was in the Football Hall of Fame after leading the Cleveland Browns to a number of championships in the All-American Football Conference as a quarterback and future Hollywood superstar Chuck Connors from the TV show The Rifleman was also on this team. And I shared Chuck Connors' story way back in episode 38 if you want to go check that out. With Bob Davies on the team, they made the fast break their hallmark. Now, nobody was going to confuse them with the fast-paced basketball that we see in today's NBA. This is not the seven seconds or less offense of the Steve Nash-led Phoenix Suns. But for the 1940s, Where stalling was still an often used tactic, the Royals played faster than anyone had ever seen in that day. They finished the regular season with a record of 24 wins and 10 losses, and that took them to second place in their division behind the defending champion Fort Wayne Pistons. Yes, that is the same Pistons team that plays in Detroit today. They matched up in the first round of the playoffs, and the Royals beat the Pistons two games to one. In the NBL Finals, the Royals overwhelmed the Sheboygan Redskins with their speed, and they took three straight games and the crown in 1946. The following season, the Royals were looking to defend their title, but in a very unusual decision, Davies agreed to become the new head coach at Seton Hall University while still playing for the Royals. It was about a seven-hour drive back then between Rochester, New York, and South Orange, New Jersey, where the school is located, the Royals owner and coach Les Harrison agreed to fly Davies back and forth on his private plane in order to make sure that Davies played as many games as possible. In all, Davies missed only 13 Royals games that year due to scheduling conflicts with Seton Hall. Yes, Davies still won the NBL MVP that year. Can you imagine last year's MVP, Giannis Antetokounmpo trying to lead the Bucks to a title while also head coaching Marquette University? and those two teams play in the same city. But that is the way professional basketball salaries were back then. And I know I've said this before, but more often than not, players took pay cuts to play professional basketball. Many could make much more money working in a corporate job. So the players played basketball because they loved the game and they could always get that corporate job later. The window to play professional basketball was very small. And did I mention that Davies was also the head coach of the baseball team at Seton Hall? But luckily, the baseball season did not interfere with the Royals' schedule. Unfortunately, the Royals were not able to defend their title. They lost the NBA Finals to the Chicago American Gears and their new superstar rookie, George Mikan. Then, in 1948, the Royals were focused on regaining their crown as NBL champions, and the odds were in their favor since the Chicago American Gears had gone out of business despite winning the championship. However, a brand new team called the Minneapolis Lakers had acquired George Miken, along with future Hall of Famer Jim Pollard, and the Lakers steamrolled their way to the NBL championship. Now, while all this was going on, Davies had earned his master's degree in physical education by taking classes in the off-season. This guy kept a full schedule. Other changes were also happening in the NBL, four of the NBL teams decided to switch to a new league that would become the current NBA. The Royals, Lakers, Pistons, and Indianapolis Jets switched leagues, leaving the NBL gasping for breath as some of their best teams and best superstars left the league. Just a year later, the Syracuse Nationals and the Blackhawks would join them. In case you are counting, that is five teams that are still playing in the NBA today that got their start in the old NBL, and then switched to what is now the NBA. At the time, the NBA was still called the BAA, or Basketball Association of America, but for simplicity, we will just call the new league the NBA. For the NBA, this was a big coup. Not only did they want these teams for financial stability, but what they really wanted was the superstars of Mikan and Davies because those two players sold tickets, and that was good for everybody. The first year in the NBA, which was 1949, was a successful one for the league. At the end of the season, they named their all-NBA first team and on that list was George Mikan and Jim Pollard from the Lakers, Joe Fulks from the Warriors, Max Zislavski from the Stags, and Bob Davies from the Royals. But again, the Lakers won the championship. In 1950, Bob Davies made the first-team All-NBA again, but again, the Lakers won the championship. The Royals could not catch a break. They simply could not figure out George Mikan, but they were not alone. Nobody else in the league could figure out Mikan either. He was just too dominant. It was like in the late 1990s and early 2000s when NBA teams would say things like, We need someone who can stop Shaq. Uh, yeah, good luck with that one. For the 1950 and 51 season, a new rookie entered the league and he was called the next Bob Davies. His name was Bob Cousy. That season was also the first one where the NBA decided to put on an All-Star game. And Davies was a unanimous choice to start at guard for the West team where he would be teamed with his nemesis, George Mikan. In fact, Davies was selected to play in the first four NBA All-Star games. But 1951 was not just a good year for him individually, it was a great year for the team. In the playoffs that year, they were able to knock off the defending champion Lakers and made it to their first NBA Finals against the New York Knicks. What made the victory sweeter is that George Mikan's little brother, Ed Mikan, came off the bench for the Royals it was the only time that Ed beat his big brother in a significant game. At first, it looked like it was gonna be a rout as the Royals won the first three games easily of that NBA Finals, but then the Knicks turned it on to win games four, five, and six and send it to a game seven back in Rochester. In front of a packed crowd of 4,200 people, the Royals and the Licks played down to the wire. The game was tied at 75 with less than a minute to go Davies was fouled going in for a layup and he made both free throws to go up 77-75 with just seconds left. Then they were able to steal the ball from the Knicks and score one last basket to win by four and capture their first and still only NBA title. That series is still the closest that any team came to coming back from a 3-0 deficit. Still today in NBA history, no team has ever come back in a series once they were down three games to none. Since the Royals were the NBA champions, they received the honor of being the professional team in the college all-star game that year. Now that is the game that Davies played in after his senior year at Seton Hall, but now he was playing for the professional team. The pro team won and Davies was the MVP of the game again. He is still the only player to win the MVP award of the college all-star game as a member of the college team and later as a member of the pro team. Now, the college All-Star game doesn't happen anymore. It went away years ago. But in 1952, the Royals came back to defend their title. Unfortunately, they were not able to do so and the Lakers pulled through and won yet again behind the power of George Mikan. Davies was an All-Star and named to the NBA First Team alongside Mikan, Kuzi, Ed McCauley, and Paul Arizon. Due to his success and his flashy style of play, he was a very popular endorser. He was one of the faces of Wheaties. He filmed three 60 second commercials for them and in return he received $500 and free Wheaties for a year. He also sold beechnut Nut Gum and various other products. And due to his success on the court, the fact that he was a genuinely nice man, a good husband and father, and had good looks, he was the perfect endorser. The guy had a slight resemblance to James Dean during his playing days. But, as is true for any athlete, by 1953 his skills began to diminish. He only made the NBA second team, and by 1954 he was coming off the bench for the Royals. He was still an All-Star level player, but he was beginning to slow down. In the All-Star game that year, he fouled out, guarding Bob Cousy. In that summer of 1954, He signed a summer contract with the Boston Whirlwinds, a team that toured with the Harlem Globetrotters. They hired him because of his flashy play. They figured it would be good for the show for the Globetrotters' opponent to have a guy who was just as flashy as the Globetrotters were, and that would give them a sense of excitement. One of the teammates that summer on the Whirlwinds was Bevo Francis. Bevo was the subject of episode 44, in case you want to go back and listen to that story. Bevo twice scored over 100 points in a college game. But this is a Bob Davies episode, not a Bevo Francis episode, we already did that one. So, after that summer with the whirlwinds, Davies returned to the Royals for one final season. Then, very early in that 1955 season, he announced publicly that he would retire upon the conclusion of the season. That is when the farewell tour began. Those of you who are old enough probably remember the retirement tours of Dr. J and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. In those cases, as with Davies, each city had a special Bob Davies night as he played there for the last time. Everyone knew how good this man was and how much he meant to the NBA in helping the league to get off the ground and to get on solid financial footing. Many talk about George Mikan as being the first NBA superstar and the best player of the first half of the 20th century, but many consider Davies to be the NBA's second superstar and the best guard of the first half of the 20th century. Davies would turn 35 during that final season, making him the oldest player in the NBA by two years. I just did a quick check of the current players in the NBA and today there are only 13 players in the league that are 35 or older, including Udonis Haslam who just re-signed with the Heat at the age of 41. At the age of 35, Davies was already played way beyond what was typical for that era. In that final season, he was the first player to dish out 20 assists in a single game. Sports writer Leonard Lewis said that Davies was as important to the NBA as Joe DiMaggio was to Major League Baseball. At the end of that season, the Royals got knocked out by the Lakers yet again, and Davies' number 11 jersey still hangs in the rafters in Sacramento. After retirement from the NBA, he took the head coaching position at Gettysburg College because he was close to where he grew up. But Gettysburg was a small school with a small budget and they lost more often than they won. They went 18-30 and during his two years as coach and he had enough. He just could not stand the losing. He then took a job working for Converse as a shoe rep handling the Northeastern United States. He was off on the road visiting shoe stores, checking inventory and placing orders. He did that for 20 years until his final retirement from working altogether. In the 1970s, the NBA started to put on an old-timers game in conjunction with the All-Star game. They would get retired players to play a shortened game to give the fans another chance to see some of their favorite players from the past. And Davies was a regular participant in these games. In fact, he played his final old-timers game in 1985 at the age of 65, easily the oldest player in the game. Pistol Pete was also in that game and he was only 36. And just to give the game some old school flair, Davies shot nothing but two-handed set shots and made most of them. The other passion in his life after his NBA career was working with an organization called the Fellowship for Christian Athletes where he would put on basketball clinics all over the country. He was so effective in his work with the FCA that they renamed his home chapter from the Harrisburg chapter to the Bob Davies chapter. At the end, He succumbed to prostate cancer and passed on on April 22, 1990 at the age of 70 with his family around him. But in a way, his legacy still lives on in a series of novels. You might remember the name Claire B. He is in the Hall of Fame as a coach. He coached Long Island University from 1931 until 1951 and won a bunch of NIT titles along the way. Under his leadership, Long Island was one of the strongest basketball teams in the nation. He later coached in the NBA for a couple of years in the 1950s. He was also an accomplished author. He wrote a series of sports novels for kids featuring the fictitious Chip Hilton, the All-American kid who was good at every sport he played and exemplified sportsmanship, integrity, and hard work. Claire B wrote 23 of these novels in all and his character of Chip Hilton was directly based on Bob Davies. Coach B just loved the way that Davies played and conducted himself this inspired the novels. He wanted to write about a character that the kids could look up to. He even gave Chip Hilton the nickname of the Blonde Bomber, which was one of Bob Davies actual nicknames. And the cover art for the novels was the spitting image of what Davies looked like in high school. The novels were a success. In stores, they could be found on the same shelf as the Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew. Bob Davies once visited Claire B. at his home, And at the time, Coach B had been long retired and had lost his sight. When Davies walked in, he saw Coach B's grandson reading a Chip Hilton novel out loud. So Davies walked right up to the grandson and said, Hello, I'm Chip Hilton. The grandson's eyes went wide. He could not believe that Chip Hilton was real. Well, Davies let him off the hook pretty quickly. Since 1997, the NBA actually gives out an award called the Chip Hilton Award. For a basketball player that exemplifies the highest character the inaugural winner was tim duncan but i want to go back to why this story had me so fired up bob davies was rightly included in the list of the top 10 players in nba history back in 1971 for that silver anniversary but in 1996 for the 50th anniversary of the nba the league decided to name the top 50 players in league history Surely, if he was on the top 10 list in 1971, he would still be in the top 50 in 1996, right? Well, he wasn't. He was completely excluded from the list, and I believe that is a shame. He definitely deserves to be on that list. And I will take this a step further. You know how every year around All-Star time, someone on ESPN or TNT will complain that a certain player was unjustly left off the All-Star roster? Well, I don't have a problem with that opinion, but there are only a limited number of spots on the All-Star team. If you say that one player should be included, then you have to name the player that you think should be removed. I think that's only fair you cannot just go adding guys to the all-star games without taking other guys out so with that in mind if i want to see bob davies included in the top 50 nba players of all time then i need to say who should be removed to make room for him in my opinion that answer is dave debusher no offense to dave debusher he was an incredible nba player and a deserving hall of famer but i will maintain that bob davies was better bill simmons the sports writer and nba historian put together a list of the top 96 players in NBA history and he too left Bob Davies completely off the list. I mean, surely he was in the top 96. So this is what I meant at the beginning of the episode where I say that he is one of the most forgotten players in NBA history, he is completely missing from some of these top lists of players when he was clearly one of the best players that ever played. He needs to be remembered and I am just glad that I can have a small part in keeping his legacy alive. For anyone who loves basketball history, we cannot forget Bob Davies. Well, that is our story for today. Join us next week when we share the story of Paul Arizin, one of the other early superstars of the NBA. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. Also, go ahead and give us a rating and a review, and that will help others to find this podcast more easily. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Lewiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon.
0: Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode of Here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 miracle on ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday Sports.